Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. So we're going to continue this series DP, uh, what we call Missions March. I want to give you a recap just real quick of where we've been. Just so you can know today where today's message fits into our talks and what we've shared so far. We've been, over the last few weeks and the last few years in, in March, trying to answer the question, where is God working in the world? And then how can we join Him? How do I jump in to the mission and the story, the narrative that God has going. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ in the room or streaming live today, that is the deep cry of your heart, right? God, show me what you're doing. I want to see clearly what you're doing and then help me steward my one little bitty life in light of the grand eternity. Help me to steward it well for your story. So over the last few weeks, we've been dealing with the missional impulse. We talked about missional angst. We talked about being involved in missional culture. I talked two weeks ago about how to go with Jesus and be involved in missional conversations. Pastor Chad continued in communicating the, the, the perception and desires and sensitivity to what God is doing in our own lives as we're able to share and allow the life of God to flow to other people. And today I want to address... The number one question I get pastorally connected to the mission of God. Now, this is not the number one question I get within the last year. This is the number one question I've gotten in all of vocational ministry as it relates to God's mission. People ask all the time, Pastor Craig, this stuff is great. Got it. Woo, feel inspired. Yeah, wait, woo, let's go, run. Team Jesus, let's share the gospel. Let's do this. Let's be on the forefront. But what about... That's what I want to address today, the what about. Several years ago, there were several in our church that trained for a half marathon. And so we picked up the training about, uh, I think for my wife and I, about April. And it was, it was an October race. And uh, don't let this middle-aged dad bod fool you. Underneath this is a runner's body, okay? And right up here is a runner's mind, okay? And uh, it is. It's somewhere in there. And so um, we were training, right? And so we got in these groups together, and some people in the church, were, you know, we trained and had these little, you know, periodic runs throughout the summer. And then all of a sudden, about a month before the race, I ended up getting appendicitis and an infection in my colon. And so I had to drop out. And uh, I guess I could have pushed a little bit, but I had to drop out. So then I was just team cheerleader there for the last few weeks. And I remember, you know, my wife was involved getting ready for this, you know, half marathon. And it became race day, and we went and picked up Pastor Chad, and, and we're making our way all the way up to Dalton. And it felt, honestly, when we got out of the car, like we're going to war. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's like all this whole big tribe running for the. I mean, I feel like you're in the Middle Ages, and I wasn't even running. You know what I'm saying? Like you're running to the forefront. Everybody's going to this one single line. And you line up, and after we checked in, and, you know, everybody's getting together and pumping up one another, I started seeing these random people with signs that are holding up. And I'm thinking, what are these signs? You know, I don't have much experience in the marathon world. And so I asked God next to me, hey, what's these signs? And he said, oh, 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 hey, those are called pace signs. 
I said, pace signs? What are pace signs? He said, yeah. He said, real marathoners have trained so much, they know their laps. What do you mean their laps? They know minute by minute what they have to run in order to reach the goal that they want for the entire marathon or the entire half marathon. So what do they do is they hire, employ, you know, volunteer some other folks to be able to create signs and stand at different junctures in the journey to be able to pace them. You're going to put pacers to help pace you in the race. Now, ever since that day, I've thought quite a bit about that. Because particularly living here in Atlanta and in the season called church planting, coming up on six years this August, this is the question people ask more than any other question. What sort of pace do you live at to sustain your heart in full-time ministry? What kind of pace? I'm not asking what kind of pace do you live to just make it to where you are in old age and die. That's not what this asked. How do you live at a pace that keeps your heart alive? Where your heart doesn't die on the vine, doesn't go numb because of the pace of life in full-time ministry. Because it feels like, honestly, we are living in what one author I like to read calls the great acceleration. The great acceleration. It feels as though things are getting faster and faster. It feels as though time is warping at a warp speed. It's more challenging now than ever for us to try to figure out how to keep our hearts alive. For us to figure out how to breathe. For us to figure out how to find rhythm and grace and harmony and live in this world. To actually be present at work. To actually be present in the moment. One of the books I read early on, very early on in ministry, tried to put my mind around this or touch this reality, was a book called Margin. Margin. They'll show you a slide by Dr. Swenson. This book called Margin. Amazing book. And in this book, he talks about that margin space. Now, define margin is that leisurely joy when we are not too stressed, when we have a little bit of space in our life. And what he does in this book is he begins to talk about how that's eroding in our society. I get it. I get it. I'm there with you. He basically says that we are perpetually overloaded by pressures, that this is how we live. He said all of the events in our Western lives, what they do is they come together, they collapse in on us, and what they do is they grind you, and they create a friction and a stress because there is no pace, there is no rhythm to how we live. So in his book, he gives... 19 categories of things that tend to overwhelm people. And I thought, you know, we don't have time for that today, so let's just address 15 of them. He says, okay, I'm just hitting them quickly. Tell me if you've ever experienced any of these. Activity overload. Too many activities booked up weeks in advance. Anybody been there? People are asking me for meetings, and I'm like, I can't find anything in 14 days. I can't find anything in 20 days. Activity overload. Way too much going on. Booked out weeks in advance. Change overload. Can't keep up with all the change. Change is happening too quickly. It's happening too fast. Y'all, it is possible for Tay-Tay to put out a new, a new album at this point in history. I'm not talking about Tay-Tay here. I'm talking about Tay-Tay Swift. It is possible for Tay-Tay Swift to put out an album at this point in history. You not even know about it. And three weeks later, it comes on the radio. And you're like, how did I miss Tay-Tay's new song? It's 21 days Tay-Tay has gotten under my skin, okay? So it's possible in our world to live that way. What about this one? Choice overload. The paralysis of options. It just overwhelms us. We just don't know where to turn. We don't know what choice to pick. Commitment overload. 
I would love to. I don't know where you all do. I would love to do that. We feel the need to say yes, yes, yes. Debt overload. Young people, one of the biggest things plaguing your generation is debt overload. Propagated further by student loan debt. How amazing would it be to go to an 18-year-old who doesn't know what they're doing in life or called to do in life and say, hey, you want to go $150,000 in debt to just start these next four years? But that's what we do in America. Okay, it's what we do in America. I'm an education number one, but it's what we do in America. Okay? It's just the natural thing. So what's this? So now we have Americans that basically feel pressure about the future. They're overwhelmed about the present moment, and then they're still plagued by their past. So now we have all this overload of complication and pressure. What about this one? Expectation overload. I don't know how to keep people happy, what people want from us. Fatigue overload, Swenson says. Hurry overload. Information overload. This stat always blows my mind. A single edition of the New York Times today contains more information than a 17th century person would have encountered in their 80 years of living. One day's information is more than a lifetime 200 years ago. Information overload. Media overload. Noise overload. How many are getting overloaded by me reading list of overloads? Overload. It feels like so much is coming at us. So here's the question I get more than any other question. And people, I think, ask me this all the time because they sense, you know what? You know, Pastor Craig, he seems to still love his city. He seems to still love ministry. He still loves Jesus. He loves the church. Uh, he's married happily. His kids respect him. How does that happen? Well, obviously, that doesn't happen by accident, right? It doesn't happen by accident for any of our lives. So here's what people are getting at. Are you ready? How do I pour myself out for something that really matters without burning out? That's what Americans are asking. How can I pour myself out for something of kingdom significance and expansion without burning out? If you were to be serious with yourself this morning and be honest, isn't that the question of your heart? You want to give yourself to a great cause, but you see all the people giving themselves to that cause, and they're being consumed by that cause, and they're being destroyed by that cause. So there's this hesitation. We look and think, oh, can I really be involved? I want to do it, but how do I do it? in such a way that I won't burn out. So I want to address that today. And for me, listen to me, that's all about the people with the signs. It's all about the pace. It's all about the people helping to pace our lives. Now, it's been my experience in Christian culture, especially in our world, obviously, for Christians, that there are two temptations and one godly vision of pace. Two Opposing temptations and then one godly vision. So I want to address the two bad paces first that will destroy us. The two paces that will eat away at our soul. And then I want to give you a vision of what I'm going to call missional pace. Or we could say it this way, sacred pace. How do you live at a sacred place? The first place I want to address is what I call, or I'm going to call today, fatal pace. Everybody say that with me. Fatal pace. It's that sense of drive and ambition that causes you to stress and causes you to max out everything you can with undisciplined desire for the pursuit of the thing that you deem 
of valuable and essential in your life. This is about ungodly ambition. This is about ungodly vision. And often, as much as I hate to say it because this is me, it's about drive. It's about drive. It's about personal drive. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. This is what Jesus says. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all of these things. Watch this. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So I want you to see this. Leave that verse up a moment. The world, Jesus said, is holding up a sign at every mile. It says, if you want to get ahead in life... Run with me at my pace for my cause and for this vision. And Jesus stops us in our tracks and says, if you do that, you will literally miss out on your destiny. You will literally miss out on the upward call of God for your life. And listen, listen, in a place like Atlanta, it's subtle, folks. It's subtle. Because what we have is sometimes the pace people send out paid ads to your Instagram feed. Okay, the pace people of culture know how to get in front of your eyes all the time. They, they pay big money for it. So they do anything they can to subtly place their signs in your line of sight. To constantly keep you preoccupied. And what they do is they pretend to feel like they really know you and they really can feel you and they can really empathize with you. And so what you do is you sign up for their pace and you begin to run along, right? Like no one ever says, hey, here is my vision. I'm going to move to Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm going to destroy my soul. You know, that's going to be my vision in life. Hey, hey, why'd you come to Atlanta? You know what? I'm just coming to sabotage my future, you know? Hey, what are you doing here in Woodstock? Well, I'm about to shipwreck my faith and destroy everything good and godly and virtuous about me, you know? Lose my kids, lose my wife. It's going to be amazing. No one ever does that. No one ever signs up for that. Yet it happens, and it happens to so many people. It happens to person after person. So what ends up happening? Here's what happens. They get caught up in the fatal pace that is about drive, and it is about ungodly ambition. It pushes them along. Listen to Paul speak to the younger A. Timothy. He's writing to Timothy who's pastoring Ephesus, which is like a money commercial center with all kinds of pace holder uppers, with sign holder uppers for the current culture. It's a commerce area. The apostle Paul writes contextually, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many and foolish harm desires. Watch this. That plunge people into ruin and destruction. Leave that up there. That is literally a baptism. You are plunging. Next week, next Sunday, we will plunge some people in our baptism. This is the language. We are going to plunge into ruin and destruction. Hey, what are you doing today? It's 9 o'clock on a Monday morning. Well, I'm thinking about plunging myself into ruin and destruction for everything good, godly, and virtuous about my life. No one ever says that. No one ever says that they're plunging themselves. What does Paul Timothy He tells him, if you have this overwhelming, ungodly ambition and ungodly desire, you are jumping face first into ruin and destruction. Now, I know we've heard this preached primarily as a critique about money. I'd like to disagree with that critique. I think this is a critique about drive and ambition for the wrong things. For the wrong things. That we're desiring things that God does not desire. Don't think you need to just give yourselves over to getting ahead because if you do, then the consequences will be dire and the consequences can even be, as Paul says, very fatal. 
So what causes people to live at a fatal pace? I think a lot of it has to do with being driven. Being driven. It's a classic book written many, many years ago by a guy named Gordon MacDonald. I cannot believe this in Christendom is not mentioned more than it is. Very few people talk about this book. It's called Ordering Your Private World. I mean, just a fantastic, fantastic book. Ordering Your Private World. It's an overlooked book. Amazingly, basically, he talks about getting our inner lives in order so that our outer lives don't crash in on the inner life. Getting our inner lives to have enough strength, enough structure, enough wisdom, enough discretion, enough power to be able to withstand outward forces. And so what he did in this book is he noticed a trend about people whose lives imploded. And he said these people tend to be driven rather than called. Everybody say driven. And and, and so he, he gives a chapter called Driven Versus Called. Driven Versus Called. He gives eight characteristics of people who are driven. Driven. Listen to what he says. A driven person is most satisfied only by accomplishment. Only by accomplishment. A driven person is preoccupied with the symbols of accomplishment. A driven person is usually caught in the uncontrolled pursuit of expansion. Okay? You can imagine when you read this, you pick your feet off the ground because your toes are really red. At least mine are. Okay? He stepped on my toes a lot and he keeps stepping on my toes. Okay? Driven people, he says, tends to, a driven person tends to have a limited regard for integrity. Doesn't matter. Get the job done. It does not matter who gets hurt. Does not matter what happens. Doesn't matter people's perceptions. Get it done. He said, driven people are not likely to bother themselves with honing their people skills. Why? Because it's not about people. It's about projects. It's about accomplishment. It's about getting it done. It's about outcomes. Sadly, this is also true of the entrepreneurial church world. It's about outcomes. Driven people, he says, tend to be highly competitive. Next one, he says, driven people are usually abnormally busy are averse to play, and usually avoid spiritual worship. No time to live from the heart. (laughs) Who cares about living from the heart? Live from the hands and feet. Live from the accomplishment. And no time to be in the presence of God. No time to sit on a Sunday morning. No time to slow down and engage. This is a fatal pace. Now, many people in our city are driven people, right? We live in a metropolitan area. By nature, you're going to be more driven. So people don't grow up in Atlanta caring about their souls. Are you with me? The default position of Western culture is not to grow up with any care for your soul. Hey, man, would you tell me about your biggest challenge right now in 2021? Well, it's actually spiritual formation. Uh, that's my biggest challenge right now. It's, um, I'm worried that my outer world is going to collapse in on my inner world. And, and when my outer world collapses in my inner world, it's going to mess up my marriage and mess up my kids. And, and I, may not like, I may not be really like Jesus in my desire. So I'm going to take 2021 to really honor Jesus and see if you know, my inner desires match Jesus' desires. No, you don't say that to the HR people in your 2021 goals when you meet in January. You tell them, I want more done. I'm going to get more done. Throw it on me, give me the raise, let's do it. That's what you tell them. So we got a world like this, and we have to live in it, and instead of trying to follow God's call, we see the world sign, and we sign up for the world sign, and then we start running, and we run at the same pace as the pagans. As the pagans. Article came out about a year ago, and um, this article was written by a girl named Ann Peterson. She wrote an article called How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. They're going to show it to you. How 
millennials become the burnout generation. Now, before we show you these images, it's a good article, but the best part of the article was, for me, the images she used to illustrate burnout. (laughs) I'll give you five of them. These are the images she picked to illustrate the fatal pace. Look at number one. (sighs) Doesn't that hurt? Just look at it. Look at number two. Ah, oh. <laughs> right. Look at number three. Ah, burning both ends. Right, me. Alarm goes off, y'all. That is the saddest balloon I have ever seen in my entire life, y'all. That balloon doesn't even have enough air in it to pop it. You literally have to take that balloon, sing Sarah McLaughlin, and just commit it to the trash can. In the arms of an angel, won't you find? And puppy has one eye missing, and you know. I mean, that's what you, that's what you do. That is so sad, right? I mean, it doesn't have enough air displacement to even, even be popped. So sad, so difficult. This next one, this one. Y'all, this one, real quick, this is actually a new technology they've created. This is, to me, is fabulous, fabulous. A Christian actually developed it. This is what they call a soul x-ray machine. And so basically it shows you people's souls during Instagram group selfies, okay? So this was a group in downtown Woodstock last night. They were out in front of Pure Taqueria and they took a group selfie and it just showed their souls. Okay? This this is created by a Christian this last. And so, so burned out, fatal pace. How, how sad. How sad. This is what Thomas Merton says about it. Thomas Merton, great Christian philosopher, he says this. He says, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything is to succumb to violence. To succumb to violence. See, many of us want peace in our world, but we're doing violence to ourselves By living at a fatal pace. Jesus says this in Matthew 16 verse 26. He says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his own soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Imagine just for a moment that scripture's up there and you take out after gain. Let me see it. Put a blank after gain. What good will it be for someone to gain? You fill in the blank. Gain what? What is it that you're after? What good would it be for you to gain, yet forfeit your own soul, yet exchange for your own soul. One of the big reactions to fatal pace is number two on your outline. And I think it's the opposite reaction. And in my case, it's an even more deadlier reaction. It's called the complacent pace. The complacent pace. The complacent pace. This one's deadly. So if fatal pace is going to kill you, complacent pace is where you run for comfort. It's where you release all of God's dreams. You put them to the wayside and you rock vanilla into the grave. Complacent pace. And so much of this says this. Oh, the world's out of control. America's out of control. You know what I need? I need balance. Balance. Now, you've got to hear me for the next few moments. When I mention the word balance, I mean it in a very clear word. There is such thing as biblical balance. But I think in a cultural narrative, balance sometimes in our language is a cop-out for complacency. So follow with me just for a moment. So often in our modern world, we talk about work-life balance in our circles. Like, you know what, Pastor Craig, work is awful, and it's sucking my soul, 
But then on the weekends, I leave Atlanta and I go on these amazing little trips to the mountains or I go to the beach for a, you know, a long weekend. And, and, and you know what? I've just learned if, if, if I can balance you know, this soul-sucking work Monday through Friday with hanging out with friends at the beach or the mountains you know, on Friday afternoon through late Sunday evening, and then I can balance that out with paying my rent or keeping up with mortgage. Then you know what? I can do this for a few years. I can make it. I can do this. Balance. Some of you are like, is he prophesying right now or is he preaching? Like, this is my life. Here's the challenge with this kind of balance is that this kind of balance isn't really biblical. It's not really biblical. I want to propose to us for a moment, balance in this way is a cultural construct put in place to deal with the abuse that we put into our schedules about a fatal pace. So let me bring John Ortberg, because he's a whole lot better than me and can say and speak a whole lot better about this lie of balance than I can. Long quote, stick with me though. He said, in our time, the great quest is for a balanced lifestyle. Ask most people in American society today what they're after, and they'll say something about the need for balance. Even so, balance is not the holy grail. A balanced lifestyle is not an adequate goal to which to devote our lives. The problem with that goal is that it's not too difficult, but that it's too light. Next slide. The problem with the goal of balance is that it doesn't allow much room for people in desperate situations, those in crisis or the poor or the oppressed. What does it mean to tell someone with a terminal disease or a street person or a single mother with a physically challenged child that she needs more balance? Balance tends to carry with it the notion that we're trying to make our lives more manageable, more convenient, more pleasant. Let me just say real quick before we continue. Balance is the vision of the privileged. You can only seek to go after balance when you are privileged. This is what John Hartberg is getting at. Notice what he goes on to say. Next slide. After all, we ultimately decide for ourselves what balance looks like. At a deeper level, the paradigm of balance simply doesn't capture the sense of compelling urgency worthy of human devotion. It is largely a middle-class pursuit. It lacks the notion that my life is to be given to something bigger than myself. It lacks the call to sacrifice and self-denial. The wild, risky, costly, adventurous abandon of following Jesus. Next slide. As hungry children in some ask ask hungry children in Somalia if they want to help you achieve balance. And you will discover that they were hoping for something more from you in America. And I believe that deep down you're probably hoping for something more for yourself. So is God. Jesus never said, if I if anyone to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and lead a balanced life. He said to follow him. He wants us to do what he would do if he were in our shoes, if he were in our place. Balance. It's not a worthy call. There is a lie of millennial minimalism. Can I speak to it a minute? Oh my gosh, we are going to battle this so hard. And I am a millennial, and that's what makes it so hard. I feel this bridge all the time. Because I can speak to parents who have teenagers, and yet I remember very closely and clearly the pitfalls of my youth. So I feel an advantage, honestly, pastoring a church because I am a bridge between. But there is a lie of millennial minimalism. Okay, I'll show you a quick blog. If you're watching streaming live today by some crazy chance, we loved you. If you wrote this blog, I love you so much. But it's how to escape the rat race by living with less. Um, yeah, right there. How to escape minimalism. How to escape the rat race by living with less. Living with less. Now, 
I start picking up in this and I'm reading this. And I look over to the left of the page and I see all these recent posts. And uh, it says, free yourself with bioenergetics. How physical expression can release you from your inner demons. You know what I'm saying? It's like exercise yourself, millennials. The power of silence, how the rat race keeps you from hearing your inner voice. Is modern society killing us? Sleep your way out of the rat race, the impact of sleep in your health. Minimalism, how to escape the rat, the rat race by living with less. You know what I think this per- person's problem is, Johnny? They have a rat fetish, okay? I think that's the issue here, the rat race, rat race, rat race, rat race, rat race, rat race, right? And so people are like, okay, get out of the rat race. So what do the millennials say next? Oh, I know what's next, the van life. The van life, right? And so now millennials are saying, hey, here's what you do. Get rid of everything. And every millennial is laughing in here. And I've got some older you know, boomers looking at me like, no, just stick with me for a moment, okay? So it's the van life. What is the van life? Oh, it's just simple, man. Just get rid of everything. Here's the problem with all of this, right? This is what the van life ends up being, okay? We see that picture. Next slide. This is what the van life is all about, okay? Your van stops working, And you've got to be towed to nowhere because you don't own a house. And you don't live in an apartment complex, okay? This is the problem, okay? And I, as a pastor, engage all of these different generations. When your whole life fits in a car and breaks down, you can't go anywhere. I'm not trying to be facetious, honestly, but this this is what you get. And people who abuse themselves with a fatal pace, and then there are those who abuse themselves with a complacent pace. I hear this quite a bit. I hear this quite a bit. I'm leaving Atlanta and moving to where it will be much. I want to talk to it a minute. I'm leaving Atlanta and moving to where it will be much. I heard a story at a conference just about a year and a half ago of a, of a couple who lived in Atlanta. They came to Atlanta to be church planners, and they had lots and lots of kids. And after they had lots and lots of kids, they said, you know what, we can't do it anymore. And so we're going to move to somewhere else to be more sustainable. We, we just can't. I mean, they, have, they were doing good, but they had to get in another city, different pace to be sustainable. Well, several years later, this couple now comes back to a Christian conference of church planters, and the man is in tears. And he's in tears. People say, what's going on? He said, where we moved is a joke he says, we moved to Atlanta because we had a mission and a call of God to reach people for Jesus. And he's now so comfortable. He said, it's so comfortable for my family. He said, God didn't want me to be comfortable. He wanted me to make a difference. He said, people are being lulled to sleep in my rural city. They're lulled to sleep. He said, I, and this is what caught me. I wish I hadn't left Atlanta I just wish I'd learned to live differently while in Atlanta. I thought, that's it. That's it. That's exactly it. That's the pace. That's the sacred pace. That is the truth. What we don't want to do is take the vision God has given us because it's hard, because it's challenging, set it aside and settle for an easier life somewhere else. That's what we do not want to do. This is what Hebrews chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 11. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end. So what? So that what you hope for may be fully realized. We don't want you to become lazy. We don't want you to become a sluggard. Okay, a slug, you've ever watched it, doesn't have a really inspiring pace to life, does it? Doesn't inspire other people. We don't want you to be that way. We don't want you to be lazy. But to imitate those who through faith 
and patience. Faith in the right things, patience play in the long game. Faith in the right things, patience play in the long game. Faith in the right things, patience play in the long game. What? Inherit what has been promised. What has been promised? Faith in the right thing, patience play in the long game. You know what this passage is telling us? If we'll have the right mentors with the right faith and we'll persevere in it, we'll get the promise every time. Maybe this message is for me more than it's for you this weekend. Okay, That is like manna to my soul. Mentors, right mentors, right faith, perseverance in it, promise is mine. And I really mean this, and I want you to hear me. I really do mean this. The reason I'm sharing this today is because I genuinely believe that your life matters. Like you are not an accident. God created you for a person. You matter. God puts you here. And he has a calling and he has a purpose for you. And the enemy's number one plan is to get you so busy living at a fatal pace or so bored after burnout that you are separated from his purposes for your life. And then what you do is you give up on godly vision and ambition and you don't choose sacred pace. We need you. We need you. We need your gifts. We need your investment. We need your life. We need your embodiment. We need you. So let's talk about the godly vision. If we've got fatal pace on one side and complacent pace on the other, let's talk about sacred pace. Now, sacred pace is not my term. It's from a guy named Terry Lupard. He's an amazing, amazing godly man. And for me, my desire is sharing this is I want all of us to learn how to live at a missional pace. Now, so you don't fall into those extremes of fatal pace, missionally, or complacent pace. To find out what God has for you, watch this, lock into it, then skillfully learn to manage it, and then play the long game, serving the kingdom of God in a place that matters. That's, that's God's mission. That's why sacred pace matters. We have the opportunity to learn from other generations that either burned out or dropped out, so we don't have to do that. So let me give you, number three, my definition of sacred pace. Are you ready? This is my definition of sacred place or missional pace. It's walking and working with God under the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm very, very particular on every word in that definition. Okay? Walking and working with God under the leading of the Holy Spirit. Walking with God, that's the pace. Remember Enoch in Genesis? Before he was translated to heaven, he walked with God. You know what his testimony was? He pleased God for 300 years. You want to talk about a person playing the long game? Enoch played the long game, said, I'm going to walk with God, and he was no longer. He was taken into God's presence. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that so powerful? He walked with God. That was his pace. The pace signs, God's pace. He walked with God, played the long game. I'm walking with God. I'm not going to be taken off that pace. I am walking with God. The scriptures repeat time and time again. We do this now in the new covenant by walking in the spirit. Are you with me? So now we're not like Genesis and Enoch. We do walking with God by walking in the spirit. Let's read it. Ephesians 5, verse 15, 16, 17, 18. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Watch this. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, notice this. 
We have to understand God's will and then be filled with the leadership of God's spirit. Now, the whole thrust of Galatians 5, this is Ephesians 5, but Galatians 5, which is the fruit of the spirit, you remember the fruit of the spirit passage, which by the way, it is fruit, not fruits. It's one fruit, nine dimensions, okay? Oh, I hear that all the time, fruits of the spirit. It's the fruit of the spirit, nine ways, okay? Nine facets. And in Galatians chapter five, this is the thrust. This is the thrust of the whole passage. Since we live by the spirit... Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Are you with me? That's new covenant living. We live by the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. So one line in Colossians chapter 1 that is so amazing because the Colossians, uh, Paul's writing to the Laodiceans and Colossians, he, he says that complacent pace is killing you guys. It's going to sap you of all godly ambition and, and, and vision. And so this is what he says, chapter 2, verse 3. He says, to this end... Scripture memorization. If you want a memorized scripture to help you with daily pace, listen to these words. So precise. To this end, long game, I strenuously, I got to do it. I volitionally have to work hard. I strenuously contend with all what? My own energy? No. I use all the energy. Christ so powerfully works in me. Amen. Hallelujah, church. Let me read that verse again. To this end... What? Long game, long game, long game, long game. I strenuously contend. I got to work. It's, it, it, I, there's no substitute for the work, for the sweat, the blood, the tears. But what do I work with? With all of the energy that Christ so powerfully works in me. So there's an inner source of life fueling his outer life that enables Paul to stay at a sacred pace. Paul was not at a fatal pace. Paul was not at a complacent pace. Pastor Chad said last week, this is the passage in John 6. Jesus, he's ministering, uh, John chapter 4, the woman at the well. They go get all the food. They come back. Jesus, are you hungry? Where's your lunch? He says, no, no, I've been eating since you left. What do you mean? You got no food. He says, my food is to do the will of the Father. Meaning, when you live in God's will, it will physically energize you. I believe one of the reasons people are so exhausted is because they're never doing God's work. They're never doing the work of God in God's way. There is food that you know not of when you do what God has called you. Man, I sense the Holy Spirit in this point. There is food, there is substance, there is strength that will work in your life when you get under the walking and the working of the leadership of God's Spirit. God will strengthen you in ways you never dreamed possible. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, I want to be clear here. I don't want you to burn out, and I don't want you to give up your ambition and die out. And somehow in our culture, we have both extremes. I want you to figure out how to run hard, don't hear, hear me right, with a full heart in the long game. We got one short life to live. We can't run it soft. We got to run it hard. But we got to run it hard with our hearts alive and our perspective on the end. Amen? John Wesley put it like this. I love John Wesley. Uh, parents, if you've ever used the Torchlighter series, Torchlighters does 30-minute videos, animated videos about men and women of God in history. So I started those with my kids. They love them. So what we do, that's our 30-minute nighttime routine. And one, the one on John Wesley is amazing. And this is what John Wesley said about his life. He said, though I'm always in haste, I'm never in a hurry because I never undertake more work than I can go through with calmness of spirit. Y'all, have you ever read Wesley's life, by the way? 
You read his diary, up at 5 a.m., ran one mile. Led communion service, preached first sermon, 545. Hundreds converted in the village under the power of God. People shaking, convulsing, holding on for dear life. 7 a.m., preached one more time. 7.30 a.m., went, dealt with this person, counseled. He would travel on horseback, and when he traveled on horseback, he would write in his journal because he said, I cannot waste time. He is shaking, redeeming the time, writing in his journal. So don't get me wrong. If you hear this message today and you, th- and you think I'm saying to you, calm down and slow down, that's not what I'm saying. The Spirit of God can say different things to different people. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we do it with our hearts still alive at a sacred pace. I got to do more. I read John Wesley's life and I'm like, what am I doing with my life? What am I doing? Got to do more. One short life to live. By the way, guess what? That was one day in his 70s. That wasn't his 40s. That was his 70s. But he said, and this is the point I want you to get, I have a calmness of spirit, so I never feel like I'm chasing the wrong thing. Hear me, church. Hear me, church, you will maintain a calmness of spirit even in busy seasons of doing the work of God if you'll do what God's asked and not just chase the wrong thing. You'll get a calmness of spirit. So here's my myth. Here's the myth because so many people are freaked out about fatal pace in our culture. They're given into complacent pace as the solution. Complacent pace is not the solution. The solution is living in this beautiful tension of what? What is the spirit saying today? How do I hear the Father's voice? Where is he working? How do I join him? And then that's it. That's the tension. This is what made Jesus so compelling, right? I mean, isn't this what made Jesus' life so, so compelling? I mean, amazing. I know for me, living in our culture, I mean, it's a pet peeve of mine because I feel this call to spur men and godly men to step up to the plate because most of the values of our culture and society are devolving because men are not being men which is calling marriages to break down, which is causing collateral damage to kids. Like, why are our men in America going to bed with so much energy? That's not what God designed me for. It's not what God designed you for. I'd say, why are men going to bed so strong? Here's what we do, men. We work hard, very hard. We work at work for the glory of God. What do we do? We pull into our driveway. We calm ourselves. We pray some kind of prayer. We go in and we serve mama. We look to mama's needs. Why? Because the Bible has put on our shoulders that our wives should look like well-watered gardens so that we speak to our wives. We check in with our wives. We get on the floor. We play with our kids. We interact. Whatever we have in that evening, we engage. Then what do we do? We tuck them in bed and we pray. We lead out spiritually in our homes. And then when everybody's down, what do we do? We sit back down with mama and we check on mama's heart. And we ask questions about mama. And we ask what's going on. And then we pray and then we go to bed exhausted, right? Literally wrung out for the glory of God. And then we wake up tomorrow and we do the same thing again. And we don't have enough men looking at young men saying, that's what your life will be. It's not meant to be easy. God made it hard because he loves you so much that you wouldn't be able to do it on your, your own, man. That you would have to lean into him. I want a church full of men wrung out for the glory of God. Poured out for God's grace and God's glory and God's purpose. That we say, you know what? I'm working with all the power that Christ so powerfully works in me. I'm contending with all of that 
energy. So I get provoked for men who refuse to step into this. I feel grief for them because everything works right when men are being men, when men are stepping, when wives are being women. Oh, that we would grow. Amen? It's hard. I know it's hard, but God meant it to be hard so we would trust in Him. To me, when I look at Jesus' life, it's what's so compelling. He was so free. The Father's voice was so loud that He just wasn't controlled by people's opinions or voice. He was just so loud it liberated him. So one night, he has a revival in a village, Mark says. He's healing and casting out demons. He wakes up the next morning, spends a little time with the Father, prays. And then the disciples come to him and say, you ready to start back in the morning session? He says, nope, we're out. What do you mean we're out? Yep, healing ministry yesterday. I got to go to other villages and teach tomorrow. What? Do you see that? He was so free. So free because he would hear the Father's voice. He said, we must go to other villages to preach. Tell me if there would be any men of God or women of God who are experiencing revival deliverance ministry like Jesus one evening, wake up the next morning and say, oh, we're leaving it, going to the next city, exchanging revival ministry for teaching ministry today. Why? It's because the Father said so. So free. No fear of man. Total assurance of what the Father wants. Hear me. Right here, church. Most of you are burnt out because you're doing things with good intentions that God never asked you to do. I'm going to say it again. Most of you are burnt out because you're doing good, noble things with good, noble intentions that God never asked you to do. So here's my simple point, and this is the key to life. Hearing what the Father's saying and then responding. It's walking with God and then working with Him in response to His Spirit. Y'all know I'm charismatic. Y'all know I'm spirit-filled. I believe in all of those things and every gift of the Spirit. But gifts are no substitute for that still, quiet heart where you turn your ear to the Father's voice, looking for the leadership of the Spirit of God in your life and doing what God says. Listen, that inner thing is where we get our pace from. That inner thing. So Jesus would withdraw to hear from the Father and then he would come back to engage. And this is the model. Withdraw to hear and engage. Withdraw, engage. Most of us fall into the trap of too much or too little. But actually, we have a fear of stress, so we think our goal is to get rid of stress. But it's not. The goal is to have good stress. Everybody say, you stress. E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S. Now, the pioneering research of this good stress was done in 1974 by a physiologist named Dr. Hans Seal. Can I show you something real quick? I think this might help you. This is Dr. Hans Seal, and what he did is he started coming up with the reality that stress is good for people. But there's good stress and, and negative stress. I want to show you real quick. This is Dr. Hans Seal. So you see the performance level on the left and the increased stress? He says if you're over here on the far left, you're going to have complete boredom. So if there's no stress in life, you're going to be underachieving. Okay? Now you start getting to you stress, which is you're stimulated, you're energetic, and you're in peak performance. You need good stress. We as humans need good stress. But then what happens? If you don't if you get too much stress, you break down, right? Mental crisis, breakdown, disorientation. But in the middle, you have you stress. By the way, can I, can I just preach a minute for you real quick? You know what the capital, the EU prefix is in Greek? The same one for euangelion, good news. Because the good news comes through you stress people. That's where the good news gets spoken to people. Good, that's the prefix good. 
Your stress is good stress. It's causing you to be at peak performance. It's, it's causing you to engage the world around you. Okay? Well, his ideas were further developed on a human, what we call a human function curve. I want to show it to you real quick. I've edited it. They should probably pay me for it. Okay? I edited it down here to the paces. Okay? But if you look at this human function curve, this, to me, maps out what it means for a man, a woman, to be at their absolute best. You have complacency pace over here with boredom. Okay? And then you have on the far right, ill health, exhaustion, breakdown, which is a fatal pace. But look right in the middle. Yes, sacred pace. You have missional pace. Living in what God desires. Honestly, honestly, it's my take. It's that, that's what people are asking for when they ask me or they meet with me. They're not saying, hey, this is too hard. You know, I want to kill my dreams and do something easy. I'm going to leave. I don't think they're asking that at all. I think they're saying is how do I do what God's asked me to do at a sacred pace? How do I keep my heart alive? We must see Jesus holding up a sign that says, run with me. Learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. Right? Because it's a yoke. It's still a yoke. It feels like a yoke, but it's light. It's not burdensome. Okay? I'm going to walk at the pace that you need to walk. So pressure, listen, listen, church, is not bad. You don't have to go to a monastery to live. Jesus didn't live in a monastery. If you live in a monastery, you can't engage the world with the gospel. So stress is not bad. Pressure is not bad. But hear me, the world needs your heart. The world needs your godly ambition. The world needs your godly dream. It needs you living in a beautiful, compelling way for the long game. So how do we do this? That's how I'll end. First of all, you start with a vision for your life. Do you have a vision of what the kingdom of God is? is? Now, I want, you to, I, want you, I, want, I want you to hear me. Do you right now have a vision for the kingdom of God, what it is, and how you are to be a part of it? Hear me. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. If you don't know right now what the kingdom of God is, you will spend your whole life seeking something that you don't know. I'm going to say that again. You owe it to yourself to define in your mind what the kingdom of God is. One sentence. And how do you fit into it? Seek first what Jesus said. The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. So if we can't define the thing we're supposed to be seeking every day, we're in trouble. So I've got to ask myself, what is the kingdom of God? What is God's vision for my life? Okay, I owe it to myself. And then it must be, next slide, rooted. It needs to be robust. And it needs to be resistant of other visions. Kingdom of God is God's rule and reign. It's his will being actualized in our world. The kingdom of God is his will being actualized at your cubicle. Being actualized in your situation. Secondly, here's what you got to do. You got to clarify your calling. So the second question you've got to ask is, hey, inside God's kingdom, what is my specific calling? You have to figure out why he's giving you your personality. Some of you, you have a driven personality. He gave you that on purpose, okay? Your temperament, you have to figure out why God gave you your temperament. Why do you have dreams? Why do you have those dreams? Why did God put those dreams in your heart? And once you get clarity, next step, you have to banish comparison, once you get clarity, you've got to banish comparison. You will not stand before Jesus and give an account for how you live compared to someone else's life. You will not stand in front of Jesus and give a comparison for, for, for your pastor or your connect group's life. It's for your life. It's for how you are called to live. It's for your temperament. It's for what God has in front of you. 
You will give an account for the upward call of God in your life. Do you know yours yet? Hear me. The only thing that will free you from the fear of man is to get clarity on the upper call of God in your life. And then, next one, finally, we have to live and understand, next slide, kingdom rhythms. We have to live and understand kingdom rhythms of engage and withdraw. You see this in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus would engage and withdraw. Jesus is always sneaking off from the crowds. We must feel and pour. Walk with God, work with God. Receive, respond. Field up, pour it out. I think if I've gotten one thing right in my time here, I feel like I've gotten that right. The tension between receiving and responding, between engaging and withdrawing. You say, how do we do that? I'm going to give you three quick things. Number first of all, you've got to build a daily rhythm of intimacy with God. Daily rhythm of intimacy with God. I'm not talking about intercession, where we're calling it down from heaven. That's later. I'm talking about intimacy with God. People say, hey, can I come see your prayer life? I'm like, you can, but it's going to be very uninspiring to you. Because most people think my prayer time and intimacy in the morning is just, you know what it's like most of the time? Me walking around, meditating on the same scripture over and over with just kind of a half smile on my face. That's really my, that's all my time is. I'm meditating on scripture, trying to listen. I'm just, I'm just waking up, trying to get joy in my heart. So my morning, can I give you mine real quick? My morning is all about intimacy, okay? Then my lunchtime is what I call incarnational prayer. You know what I do? Just take a 10, 15-minute stroll, and I just pray scripture. So if the morning for me is intimacy, the afternoon is incarnational, and then the evening's intercession. I tend to get a little bit more robust in my prayer in the evening, so that's my intercession time. So that's when I pray for God to do things. But in the morning, it's just normally just smiling and walking around in circles. I'm just... I'm just trying to get joy in my heart. I'm just trying to spend time with Jesus. I'm just trying to allow my heart to come alive, to think about his word, okay? So we build a daily rhythm, a daily rhythm. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Here's the secret. Are you ready? Don't leave the text until your heart burns. But Pastor Craig, it's not burning. Get back to the text. Pastor Greg, it's not burning. Get back to the text. At some point, watch this, the something will set on fire. A word, a phrase, or idea. Watch this. When a phrase, a word, or idea opens up, that is a portal that gets you into the presence of God. People say, how do you plan sermons? I read, 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 nothing fires. I'm like, it's getting closer and closer to the weekend, God. Okay, get back to the text. Read, read, read. And all of a sudden, one phrase, and it'll go beep, and I'll open. Whoa! <laughs> and you'll find yourself in the presence of God. The reason people get out of the presence of God is because they won't stay in the text long enough for their heart to burn. If your heart burns, that's the portal. Once your heart burns, you will be in the portal of the presence of God. And all of a sudden, things will open up. You'll see something. It, 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 it's just a word, a phrase, a thought, a revelation. But you got to get there. Daily, you got to get there. You got to get there. Okay? But then secondly, what is it? My rhythm. On a weekly deal. Of a Sabbath. The gift of, man, gift of God to humanity. Silence. To have solitude. To have gratitude. Sabbath is God's great gift. I told you all before, you can go back to listen to the message at the end of this last year. What you do on a Sabbath is you pleasure stack. Take everything you love in your life and stack it in one 24-hour period because it'll curb your desire for sin the rest of the six days. So your escape desires for the other six days will get curbed because you just fill yourself with good food, good books, anything you love that's pleasurable for you. Just feel it and keep eating it 24 hours. Sabbath, engaging. William Wilberforce, who violated the Sabbath two times in his life, He's no big deal, right? He just eradicated slavery from the whole British Empire. 
He said, two times in my life I violated the Sabbath. And here's what he said. Blessed be to the God for the rest, day of rest and religious occupation wherein earthly things assume their true size. Ambition is stunted. Sabbath stunts ungodly ambition. It gives me perspective. I pull back. And then finally, lastly, come on, band. Every season, we can step back and ask this question. So I've talked about daily. I've talked about weekly. Now let me talk about seasonally. I'm going to tell you the questions I ask myself. You ready? Number one, who have I become in what way in this last season? That's a question of formation. Who have I become? Second question I ask myself, am I becoming like more like Jesus or less like Jesus and why? And then number two, what level of joy is there in my heart today? What level of joy is in my life? Number three, am I carrying baggage from the last season? Bitterness, bondage, unforgiveness, sin, unneeded weight. Fourthly, any stress. How am I dealing with stress? And then how do I, here's the big one, how do I adjust for this next season? How do I adjust? And the elite performers in athletics, y'all know what separates them from the masses is making tiny incremental adjustments in their day-to-day life, in their schedule. So we're always mastering the art of living. It's not science, it's art form. Holy Spirit, what are you saying? What are you saying? What do you want me to do today? These practices done consistently keep me at the pace where I have passion and vision. I'm engaged. My heart's in it. Sacred pace. Missional living. Missional living. This last thing I'll show you. I read a book this last year called Essentialism. And there's a one principle in it that revolutionized. I think it's revolutionary and I picked up. It's called Heck Yes or No. Anybody ever read this book? Not a Christian author. In his book, he called it heck yes or heck or no. And he said, most burnout in our life comes from, ah, I should, ah, I feel the impulse to do it. So he created this rhythm called heck yes or no. So if it's in the area God's called you to do, heck yes, or just no, but not ah, it's the ah moments that burn us out. Heck yes or no? Hey, and I'm not saying if God's asked you to be a dad, you can say, heck no. Okay, you gotta do the things God's asked you to do. When we're talking about those peripheral things, heck yes or no? Yeah, I'm in it. Or no, I'm not. Why? Because Jesus did nothing half-heartedly. So where do I need to step up? Where do I need to step back? Some of you in the room, you're older. You have dreams in your heart. Hear this young buck up here today. Do not let the dreams in your heart die on the vine. Step up. Some of you are younger, you need to step back maybe. Where do you need to step up? Where do you need to step back? See, you all have dreams for God, but we forget that God uses us as an outlet for his dreams. His dreams. And he has dreams to accomplish through your life. And it's going to happen at a sacred pace at a missional pace. God, Holy Spirit, what are you saying? What are you doing? How do I get involved? And nothing else. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.